Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let's pray one more time together. Lord, thank you for your word. And Lord, we're longing this morning in this season for your peace. Peace that comes from being safe and protected by your power for us. So help us to see the dividing line of all humanity. Help us to again humble ourselves and come to you as our true peace. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so the the Advent theme of the week is peace, and you didn't hear a ton of peaceful things in that reading, but I think where the prophet Zephaniah wants to take us is to the places of true peace. And so the, the only place of true peace, of true rest in the universe is in the power of God. But right? if he's the almighty, almighty one of the whole universe, the one who can overrule every other thing, then the only true place of safety and peace and rest is in him, be, to be safe in him. And Zephaniah here again is gonna give a loving warning for over here is what it looks like to not be at peace with God and over here is what it looks like to be at peace with God and and if we have that peace then we have the deepest peace available to us and that's my prayer this morning is that we would see it and love it. So let me start with an illustration uh, from a book. How many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, most of you. If you haven't, that's okay. I'll explain some of it to you. I haven't read the Lord of the Rings, so I understand being someone who hasn't read good books, feels good to get that off my chest publicly. So many sermon illustrations from other pastors, I have no idea what they're talking about. And so I'll explain a little bit more about Narnia. In Narnia, one of the things that you learn quickly is that the whole story revolves around this lion named Aslan. This is an all-powerful lion who's completely good and completely righteous. He's always the hope for victory because he's always the most powerful and has all the power on his side. He always acts righteously. And you learn to love that the whole story revolves around him. You just like when he shows up. You like when they say his name. You like that everyone has to react to him, that the whole world revolves around him as you read it. The author just does such a great job. You learn to love the characters who will simply trust and obey him, don't you? As you read it, you go like, yes, just trust him. He's good. And you learn to be sad and frustrated with those who oppose him or doubt him, like, that's not a good idea, right? You shouldn't do that. And in our world, the real world we live in revolves around Jesus, right? It revolves around what you think about him. I hope that we've learned together that he's the only righteous one. I hope that we've trusted in Jesus as our only hope and refuge to be safe from the wrath of God through his sacrifice for our sins like we saw last week. I hope that we've learned that he's the holy and righteous one who died for the unholy and unrighteous to save us. I hope we've learned that to be with him and obey him and trust him is the best thing in the whole world. But the problem in Narnia and in our world is that we often don't regard the main character as the main character. We often regard the world about a lot of other things besides the main character. Some don't believe 
acting like he's more myth than reality and therefore mock him and act directly against him. And sometimes, maybe even more tragically as we read the story, those characters that have been face to face with him, they wander away from him and they forget about him. They, they act like he doesn't exist. So my prayer is that today we'd see Jesus in his holy righteousness, all that he is, and be filled with a holy, fearful delight that helps us run away from sin and run to a righteous, holy, beautiful Savior for safety. So let's dive in here to Zephaniah and see that story play out. Point number one is rejection out there and in here of the Lord. So throughout this section, Zephaniah pronounces two separate woes on the peoples of the earth here. In 2.5, he pronounces the first woe on the nations that are near the people of Judah he's prophesying. We're meant to see that geographically. In 2, 5 to 7, he describes the destruction of the Philistine people in Canaan to the west of Judah. In 2, 8 to 11, he describes the destruction of the people of Moab and Ammon, both nations to the east and all, almost always against Judah in the Old Testament. In 2, 12, he describes the destruction of Cush to the south with a sword. And in 2, 13, the destruction of Assyria to the north which was a superpower at this time and had the great city of Nineveh within it known for its evil idolatry. Zephaniah is prophesying that to the north, south, east, and west of Judah, nations will fall on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In other words, the message to Judah here is, I'm still against your enemies, but beware because the wrath is close to home. It's closing in around you. And then in 3.1, Zephaniah pronounces a second woe, which ties chapters 3, verses 1 to 7, with what he's just said in chapter 2, verses 5 to 15. But this time, it actually lands at home. This is pronounced on Judah itself. And so what I want to do here quickly is look at the differences between these two groups and then look at the similarity between them. So first, let's look at the nations. With the group of nations in chapter 2, what characterizes their wickedness? What defines the kind of wickedness we see from them? Well, verse eight says that there are taunts and revilings and boasts against God and his people. And verse 10 says that there's pride and taunts and boastings against the Lord of hosts. Verse 15, Nineveh is called an exultant city meaning a city that's lifted itself up as the greatest. It says that it's a city living securely, meaning it's self-confident and comfortable in their own power. The city that said, I am, and there's no one else. Like this is phrase is the climax of pride. God's name is I am, the always existent, always sovereign one, the creator, Exodus 3, 13 to 14. And here is Nineveh claiming this same sovereign status. And right, if we're good readers of the Bible, we can all see what's coming when someone makes statements like this. In other words, Israel is surrounded by cultures full of high-handed sin against the great I am, with some of them even claiming to be the sovereign rulers of the world themselves. Kids, this is like if you stood up and said, I'm God, I rule, I don't need anyone else, I don't need my parents, don't need anyone else, I'm in charge here. That's what this 
city was saying. We look at things around us, right? We see things like this around us, like the blatant culture of sexual sin and immorality and the disregard for human life. And we can wonder, how can people be so blind? How can they? Don't they see themselves running towards destruction? Don't they know that you shouldn't mess with God this way? And I think the answer is no, they don't. They don't know that. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world is rocked in the arms of the evil one like a baby lulled to sleep in the arms of its parents, right? If you think, I'm doing a lot of this lately, right? Rocking a baby, shh, it's okay. Let's go back to sleep. Don't be bothered. Shh, it's okay, right? Just stop screaming. There's nothing to worry about here. That's what Satan's doing to the world as they indulge in their high-handed sin. In other words, it's a horrible, haughty, and hopeless place to be. It's a place where you're blinded by your pride and you feel safe. But it doesn't stop there, right? There's Judah. There's a second woe that lands closer to home, right? On Judah, God's city, God's people. In 3.1, we see it described as an oppressive city, a rebellious and defiled people. God's people... We're supposed to live generously and righteously, taking care of the isolated and the outcast in their land and treating sojourners well because they too had been sojourners in a foreign land. And instead, Zephaniah describes a place where the weak and the vulnerable are exploited for the rich and the powerful. The people that were supposed to receive God's word and obey it and be holy had become rebellious against the word and polluted by sin. In verse 2, gives kind of a a haunting description of how they got there. Listen to Zephaniah 3.2. It says, she has not listened to any voice, probably referring to the prophets that had come. She has accepted no correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. It's a haunting question. (laughs) Are there areas, right, in, in our own lives, in my own life, where I'm not listening to the voice of the Lord, not accepting correction. I I know I'm sinning and I just keep doing it, not trusting in him, not drawing near to him. Here's Ephesus, that's what categorizes, that's what defines God's people. And this is the exact opposite of the call from last week at the beginning of chapter two, to seek the Lord and his righteousness and humble themselves. Now, this might seem like no big deal, right? We just kind of, I think, take our obedience or disobedience, our heeding the word of the Lord are not for granted sometimes because it just doesn't seem very real. But so let me give an example that brings it more into our world. Can you imagine being an employee at Amazon and having someone come directly from the office of Bezos and give you a direct word, a direct command, and just shrugging it off as if it never happened? Just going on and doing things your own way. What would you expect? You get fired pretty quick, right? Right? You don't just ignore someone with that much power and that much sway and that much influence. Kids, this is like if your parents ask you to do something and you just ignore them and do whatever you want over and over and over again. What would we expect in those situations, right? We'd expect to get fired by Bezos, right? to get disciplined by our parents if they're good parents. 
And yet so many times in our own lives, we just think we can just keep going and nothing's gonna happen. And the worst part of this is that the corruption started at the highest levels. So Zephaniah 3, 3 to 4, listen to what it says about the leaders here. It says, her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. In other words, the highest officials and leaders here terrorize the people like lions, pervert justice, do it under the cover of darkness, disobey God's law, and pollute all that is holy. And so on one hand, you have the nations who mock God because they don't really know him or think he doesn't exist. Then on the other hand, you have Judah who secretly tries to use the God they do know for their own shameful gain. Two different types of rebellion, but equally reckless. And the similarity between the two is that neither will escape without repentance. Neither will escape without repentance. And so the the call here to us, right, is we should certainly flee. We should flee from the blatant, mocking, high-handed sins of the world. We should flee from a culture of sexual immorality, including on the computer, that disregards the image of God. We should flee from that. But remember that like Zephaniah, Jesus himself pronounced woes on religious hypocrites who looked so very good on the outside but were filled with dirty hearts that did not truly honor God. They were self-righteous, right? They used religion as a way to earn their status. Look at me. Look at how much better I am than the next guy. To get their way, to put others down and instead trust themselves rather than Jesus. They looked good on the outside while the inside was filled with all this yucky stuff that they weren't willing to see. And this is a loving warning to God's people, to the church, to not show up every Sunday with the cup looking white and sparkly on the outside when the inside is filled with dark, dirty, self-righteousness, anger, pride, bitterness, gossip, and lust. Just a loving warning. Like This is what the Bible is for. Just call us back and say, don't just look out there with fear and anger and outrage, but look in here with fear and trembling before a holy God. In fact, I would go so far as to say that this isn't just a warning calling the people back, but this is a loving warning to God's people that some of them aren't really his people. Some of God's people aren't really his people. Some of them are just playing games and using God. Some of them are defiant and distracted and disregarding God, just like the cultures around them, except in more hidden respectable in religious ways. This is a loving warning not to disregard God's word in the places it comes to bear in our lives, but to humble ourselves, listen, and draw near to God because it's the best place to be in the world. All right, point number two, I think that was long. I think this is two, maybe it's three, I think it's two. We'll go quicker. A remnant taking refuge in the Lord. So the rebellion seems almost sweeping across all of mankind, and the destruction seems almost sweeping across all of mankind if you read this section. But there's these hidden places of hope in Zephaniah that are meant to strike us as we read them. So listen to Zephaniah 2 7. Look at it with me. It says, The seacoast shall become the possession, and then notice this phrase 
of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will remember them and restore their fortune. So there's a, rem- a remembered remnant who's going to restore. Even Zephaniah is good alliteration, right? A remembered remnant who's going to restore. That's hope right in the middle of the destruction. Zephaniah 2.9, therefore as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, the Ammonites like, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. But here's the phrase again, the remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. In chapter 2, we see this people referred to as God's remnant. This is basically defined as God's chosen small group of people who still belong to the Lord. And you might say, well, who are they? Like, what are they like? Why are, why are they the remnant? Why are they left behind when all this other th- stuff has been destroyed? Well, if we jump ahead to 312, we see what this remnant people is like. Here's what God says. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, They will seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. And the phrase, those who are left, is the word for remnant. These are the remnant that are left after God's wrath pours down. And what what characterizes them? They're a humble and lowly people. They've seen God's holiness, they've seen their sin, and they've run to God as their refuge. The good news is these are not perfect people. They're not perfect people. These are people who have obeyed the loving command from Zephaniah 2, 1 to 4 from last week to seek the Lord and his righteousness and be hidden in him, to find their safety outside of their selves and in the name of the Lord. They've decided to humble themselves, turn and repent of sin and seek to take refuge, or other words, be hidden in the name of the Lord from the wrath of the Lord. The only safety from the wrath of the Lord is in the Lord himself. And that's what they're running to. And notice how good it is to be this remnant. When you are part of this remnant, God remembers you. He remembers you. If you feel forgotten, if you feel like life has thrown you so many curveballs, if you feel like there's too much sin in your life, you feel like whatever you feel like might make the Lord forget you. He says, if you would turn and repent and find your safety in me outside of yourself, but come in here and get safe, I will remember you. And I think that the possessing of the land, the the plundering of the land points forward to a greater possession of the land when he comes and makes all things new and his people dwell in his presence forever. Not only does he keep you safe and remember you, but he finishes the good work he starts and he brings you to his presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Our hope then is to be part of this remnant instead of included with the rebels. And the choice is just so clear, right? If you knew what stock would do well in the future, you would be foolish not to invest all of your money there. If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, this one's going from here to here, you'd be foolish not to invest all of your money there. And Zephaniah is shouting through a loudspeaker that to repent and draw near to God, to invest in him is eternal joy, and then to invest in this world and rebel against him is eternal ruin. The dividing line is clear, and Zephaniah is saying, please 
turn. Come in here where it's safe. Turn from your sin and be safe in Jesus rather than be ruined. Point number three, the righteous radiance of God. When we look at the two groups of people already mentioned, there's a clear dividing line between rebel and remnant. And what's the dividing line? What is it, right? The dividing line is their relationship to God. That's the dividing line. Proud boasting or humble repentance. Trusting themselves or trusting in the substitute sacrifice for sin that we saw last week. Finding refuge in the name of the Lord or finding refuge in themselves. So then the question is, is that fair? Is that fair? Is it fair to draw the dividing line on God? Is that fair? Why would we do it there? Well, listen to Zephaniah 3, 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He's righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. So here's the picture. God is creator. God is ruler. God gets to determine what things are because he's creator and ruler and Lord. And therefore, if God's going to be righteous, he must act in a way that accords with his infinite worth. Right? If he's going to be God and righteous, he must say, worship me. That's the only right thing he can do. And he must say to those who don't worship him, you're ruined. And to those who do worship him, rejoice. Those who repent, forgiveness, right? He, he has to do this because if he's the center, if he's the worthy one, then it's righteous for him to act this way. He, he can't do anything else. And notice the good news that he does no injustice. Every morning, what does God do? Shows his justice. Shows up and does it again. He does not fail. We're meant to see here the contrast between the Lord within the city and the rebellious city. The Lord is totally righteous, never does an unjust thing. That means that all of the punishment of the rebels and all the merciful remembering of the remnant is simply God acting righteously or in accord with himself, with his own character. If God will continue to be God, he must be righteous. And to be righteous means he must act in accordance with his own worth as the only one worthy of worship for the good of all those who would worship him. Therefore, for those who proudly mock him or secretly use him for their own gain, there must be punishment. And those who see him as he is and repent of their sins and trust him, there must be forgiveness and love. These warnings and punishments and these promises of a people are safe in the Lord are simply God's righteousness radiating out as it has to. This is the righteous radiance of God. He must uphold his infinite worth. And so the question in our application is, will he be for us an eternal ruin or an eternal refuge? It's really that clear. That's where the line is drawn. So let's go back to Narnia, where we started. Throughout the books, whenever Aslan is around, there is a light that radiates from him. And it's meant to be this picture of the glory of Christ, who's the light of the world. 
Aslan is irresistible in these books. He's all that's good. He's perfectly patient. He's perfectly fierce. He hates all sin. He even hates like the respectable sins, like bitterness and gossip and even family fighting. He hates all of it. He hates sin. He's totally in control, even when he seems out of control. He's seeing everything, even when it doesn't seem like he can see things. He's totally the one you want to be around. Every time you think of him in the book, you're happy and fearful all at once. Like, oh, Aslan's here. Oh, Aslan's here. You feel it. You feel the tension as he walks into a scene. And in the book, The Silver Chair, a girl named Jill meets Aslan for the first time, and she's feeling all these things about him. And she asks him, it's like, this is right what a little girl would ask a lion. She asks him, do you eat little girls? It's a funny question, and you laugh. And then the response is maybe the most startling response in the whole series, I think. He says this. This is what the Aslan says. He says, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. The lion didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. That's the answer. (laughs) Yeah, I eat little girls. Right, that's like bad bedtime parenting, right? It's like saying, I won't say anything that will ruin your bedtime. But that's not the answer you'd expect. But the picture here is a picture of utter power and righteousness. A picture of one who must act in accord with his own infinite worth. Right, in the book, The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, another book in the series, one of the children again asked Mr. Beaver if this Aslan is safe after hearing that he's a lion. And the beaver laughs out loud and says, oh no, he's not safe, but he's good. And you start to feel (laughs) the tension. And throughout the books, you get the sense that Aslan deeply delights in anyone who will gladly trust him. And you get the sense that Aslan is fiercely opposed to all those who oppose him. But he will swallow up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. Not because he's boasting or sorry or angry, just because it's who he is. So you might think then, you might think then about Aslan or about Jesus, that he immediately destroys all who oppose him. Like, he's a lion, right? So oppose him, what's going to happen? You're going to get eaten immediately. That's what would make the most sense. Daniel talked about it, Jesus being this this lion figure in the Bible. But he doesn't immediately destroy all who oppose him or are treacherous to him. In fact, for one of the characters who's committed one of the greatest treacheries, Aslan dies in his place to purchase his life. Aslan makes a way for safety and restoration with his own life. Aslan finds a way to be righteous and yet merciful by paying the price for treason against him with his own life. And in that moment, you love him all the more, right? Love him all the more. And this story points to a greater story. The story points to the cross of Christ. God must punish every sin. 
He must if he's going to be God. And God, who cares dearly for sinners, showed forth his righteousness to save sinners on a terrible, beautiful cross. Romans 3, 22 to 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a substitute by his blood to be received by faith. Why? Why did it happen that way? Well, this is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present times that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, he must punish sins. He loves sinners. How will he be just and a justifier? There's only one way. He has to die for sins. And so he sends his son, the God-man comes and takes on flesh to pay for our sins that he might be just and the justifier so he doesn't have to swallow us up. But instead, sin is swallowed up in his son on the cross. He swallows his own son that we might not be swallowed up. God sent his son Jesus, the God-man, to be the perfect substitute sacrifice for sins. And all who put their faith in Jesus can have their sins forgiven and receive his righteousness. That's amazing news. That's such good news. God can be just and justify sinners because of Jesus. God seems far away at times so that we forget the power of the cross where Christ became sin for us. We forget that he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. We don't completely forget it, but we just forget it how we live. Forget it in the hard conversation at home. We forget it in the discipline of our kids. We forget it in the grumbling and gossiping at our workplace. We forget it in the grumbling and gossiping in our church. We forget it in these places that God is righteous. He sees all, yet he's made a way through Jesus. And so we're invited into more. (laughs) We're invited into more. We forget that the cross is the place we must find our refuge in, the only true place of peace. The cross is where Jesus died to pay for every sin and cast him as far as the east is from the west. And then he rose again with a mighty roar to declare his victory over death so that we need never be scared of death again if we're in him. Jesus cries out this Advent season, it is finished. Finished, declaring his victory over sin and death for all who believe, declaring the end of Satan's hope of ultimately winning anything, guaranteeing there's a day he'll come back with a sword and destroy all his enemies and wipe away every tear from the eyes of the remnant, and at the same time declaring his love and endless mercy for all eternity for those who will simply trust him. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, if we're in him, if we'll humble ourselves and come to him, whether that's today you come to him for the first time, say, forgive me. See your righteousness, I see my sin, forgive me. Make Jesus' death count for my sins. Or whether today's just another day of repentance in our life as Christians and ask for mercy, he will be our refuge, our very present help in time of need. But if we spurn him, and mock him openly, or if we try to use him in religion for our own gain, looking all shiny on the outside, but all filthy on the inside, his promise is he'll be an utter ruin to us. He will discipline, he'll ruin those who don't trust him, and he will discipline those he 
loves because he loves us too much to let us stay there. So my prayer is that we'd see God in his holiness and his righteousness. We'd see that he made a way through Jesus and we'd run to Jesus as a shining, beautiful, glorious light of the world and find refuge in him from the day of wrath that's coming. That's available right now to us to have eternal, full, free, forever peace with God, peace in his power, knowing that because we've taken refuge in Jesus, all of that roaring righteousness, all of his almighty power is now pursuing us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. So let me pray. God, it's good to remember who you are. It's good to remember you're not like us in your holiness. You never sin, you never act with any injustice. You're perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfect in every way, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing. You must act in accord with your own being. And so, Lord, we just come before you and say, you're God, and we're not. You're holy, and we're not. And yet, Lord, what amazing news it is that we can avoid just punishment for sin by simply saying, yes, Jesus came and paid the price on my behalf. My punishment has fallen on him, and now I'm a child of the living God. I'm, a, I'm an heir to all of his promises. I'm a part of this remnant that's not on the sacrifice, but is enjoying the sacrifice of Christ, saved from my sins, and going to possess all things forever in him. Lord, I pray that this season would be a season of us remembering who you are, remembering the reality of who you are, so that in the midst of sin, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of injustice and oppression and foolishness all around us and among us and inside of us, that we could have true peace that lasts forever in Jesus Christ who has paid for every sin on our behalf, cast it as far as the east is from the west, and therefore we can know he's for us and not against us not counting our sins against us, with us walking through the valley of the shadow of death and suffering with us in our times where we've been oppressed and we've been at the hands of injustice. Lord, be with your people, comfort your people, be a very present help in their time of need. Lord, help us dwell in you as our place of refuge. Be enthroned on our praises, Lord. Take your place as rightful king in our hearts and minds where we gladly rejoice in our salvation and humbly seek to follow you more day by day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to come and eat and drink with Jesus now. And if you're, if you're wanting to stay in your seat or you can't make it up, just raise your hand and we'll bring the elements to you. Uh, if you're here and you're not yet trusting in Jesus as your Savior, as your righteousness, but trusting in yourself and not yet willing to go to him, we just ask that you not take this yet. This is a meal for those who are trusting in Jesus as their Savior. If you're here and there's some sin in your life that you're not yet willing to lay at the foot of the cross, uh, man, don't, don't keep it there. We'd love to hear about it and talk to you. The Christian life is one of continual repentance. But if you're just hard-hearted, know you love this sin more than 
Jesus right now would ask you not to come and take it because we don't want you to eat and drink judgment on yourself and that's what it says will happen in 1 Corinthians. And if you're here and there's bitterness in this body, this is meant to be a meal showing our unity in the death and resurrection of Christ. We're going to disagree on a hundred other things all the time, but we're unified in Jesus. And so if there's some, some relational anger, bitterness that you're not yet willing to lay down, get help for that, but, but don't take this meal yet because this is meant to show our unity in Christ. But if you're here and you're like me and most of the other people here just struggling to fight your sin, struggling to make your relationships better, trying to walk with Jesus more and more closely every day, seeking his help, trying to repent when you sin, then this is meant to be a meal for weak, broken sinners who need the all-sufficient grace of their Savior to walk day by day. Uh, Why don't you bow your heads, and I'll read the words of institution. You can come when you're ready. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So take a few minutes with Jesus and come when you're ready.